Well, if you've got a Bible, open up to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4, we're going to look at the end of chapter 4 into the first verse in chapter 5, which really fits better with the end of chapter 4 than the beginning of chapter 5. So we'll deal with that in a section. We'll look at chapter 4, verse 21 through chapter 5, verse 1. Um, there's an outline on the back of the worship guide, if that's helpful for you to keep an eye on. See those main points as, as we move along. Galatians 4, 21 through chapter 5, verse 1. It'll be helpful if you've got a Bible open. We've got those hardback ESV Bibles there if you didn't bring one. Our passage is on page 915 if you want to use that Bible there. Um, you, you probably remember this. Even the children among us have probably heard something about this. But after World War II, when the Allies divided up Europe, the German city of Berlin got cut in half. So there was East Berlin and West Berlin. And uh, East Berlin was controlled by the Soviet Union. So it was under communist rule. You probably remember this, but, uh, but that wasn't a very popular rule to be under. And so what it meant was it was a constant flow of citizens of East Berlin making their way out into West Berlin. You weren't supposed to do that, but they found ways to do it. Well, the Soviet government realized real quick, we need to do something or we're not going to have any citizens in East Berlin. They're all going to flee to West Berlin. So they built the Berlin Wall. So that's where that wall comes from. It happens between World War II and, uh, and then, of course, when they tore down the wall in, uh, in the early 90s. So they erect that wall to keep those citizens of East Berlin in East Berlin. And the decades that the Berlin Wall stood, hundreds of people died. Many people we don't even know about trying to scale the wall, trying to tunnel under the wall. They're doing whatever they have to do to get out from under the, the slavery of that one reign and trying to get into the freedom of West Berlin. And you know what, what never happened? So that happened hundreds of times, but, but what never happened, nobody ever made it out and then decided that they wanted to go back in and live there again. Some people went back to try to get others but nobody ever went back with the idea of, I'm gonna stay in East Berlin. They, they didn't wanna go back to that slavery after finding freedom. Now the, the slavery of live, uh, living in East Berlin under communist rule, that was bad, but the spiritual slavery of a false gospel is far worse. In fact, the slavery of living under a false gospel is worse than any human suffering that has ever existed in this universe. And the reason it's worse is because the slavery of a false gospel, it holds its victims in bondage for eternity, not just for this life. And Paul realizes that the, the members of the Galatian churches, the folks he's writing to, they're considering leaving the freedom of the gospel to go back under the slavery of being under the law. And that's really what he's writing this letter about. He doesn't want them to go back to the spiritual slavery of works righteousness. So, Hear this section of Galatians, again, 4.21 through 5.1. This is what we're told. Paul says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it's written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. 
She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of the promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Okay, well, as we consider this passage, let's remember our background here. Let's remember what's going on in, in Galatia. So the false teachers around Galatia had been telling these young Christians that to be part of God's family, to really be part of God's family, faith in Christ wasn't enough. You needed faith in Christ plus good works. Going back under the Old Testament law in particular. So you had to have the male members of your house circumcised. You had to keep these certain holy days that were part of the Old Testament calendar. So they're saying you need to be back underneath the Old Testament law given to Moses. And, and these new believers, they were considering going in that direction. They were considering believing these false teachers and, and placing themselves back under the Old Covenant, again, which was the law given to Israel in the Old Testament and recorded in the first five books of the Old Testament, which are actually called the law. You might remember that. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, those are called the Torah which just means the law. And of course, the centerpiece of that was the law being given to Moses and then delivered to Israel there on Mount Sinai. Okay, so with that reminder, look again at how our passage begins. Verse 21, tell me you who desire to be under the law, talking about the Old Testament law, do you not listen to the law? Okay, so what Paul's about to do is he's about to prove his point that Christians, once Jesus has come, we shouldn't go back under the Old Testament law. He's got to prove that point again. That's kind of what he's been doing the entire letter. He's got to prove it again, but the way he's going to prove it is by pointing to the Old Testament law. So he basically says, look, the law itself is going to testify that you should not go back under the Old Testament law. And, and if this is true, that'll be a powerful argument. You know, it would almost be like if you and I were arguing about whether Duke basketball was better or Carolina basketball was better, which in our house we're pretty clear on, but I won't say where we land, but would it be like if we were arguing about that, you and I are arguing, and then John Shire, who's Duke's coach, let's say he releases a statement and he says, hey, just so everybody knows, it, it turns out Carolina basketball is better than we are. Well, it'd be pretty hard to argue that Duke basketball is better if the head coach is the one who's saying, no, the, the other guys are better. Well, that's the kind of argument that Paul is using here. He's going to the Old Testament to say, even the Old Testament tells you not to come back to it once Christ has come. So that's his, his claim here. So where does he go? Where in the first five books of the Old Testament does Paul go to the law to prove his point? Well, he goes to Genesis 16. It's the passage Ramon read just earlier. He goes to Genesis 16 in the story of Abraham and Sarah, his wife, and Hagar who was Sarah's slave. So remember, Hagar was an Egyptian servant, an Egyptian slave of Sarah, who was Abraham's wife. And we probably wouldn't know anything about Hagar, except for the fact that Sarah makes her front and center in Genesis 16, like we were just reminded of. So, so even though God had promised Abraham back in Genesis 12 that God would make him into a great nation, 
which meant, Abraham, you and Sarah are going to have children. That was part of that promise. Even though God made that promise, by Genesis 16, Abraham and Sarah, they hadn't had any children. So the Bible makes it clear, Sarah was barren. She couldn't get pregnant. And so as a way to remedy this situation, Sarah comes up with this idea for Abraham to sleep with Hagar, who's one of Sarah's servants. And then the thinking is Hagar will have a baby. And then Sarah and Abraham can raise that baby as if that baby came not only from Abraham, but also came from Sarah. And that was pretty typical in the ancient Near East, this sort of practice of a husband sleeping with a slave and then that child being considered the child of he and his wife, even though she wasn't the one that produced it. So that's Sarah's idea. And that's the story Paul says proves that no one should seek to put themselves under the old covenant of the law, the way that these false teachers were, were advocating. And as we move along, we're, we're gonna see how, cause you might hear that story and think, wait, how does this work? How does that teach this lesson? And, and we're gonna get there. We're gonna see how that works. But, but as we move along, I think the Lord's gonna give us at least three imperatives from this passage of scripture. He's, he's gonna tell you three good ways for us to respond to this passage in the Bible. And that's the way that we're gonna look at the passage. That's listed on the outline there on the back. So first, he's gonna tell us, trust God's word over your instincts. That's the first thing he's telling us to do with this passage. Second, rejoice in the freedom of the gospel. And then finally, cast out false gospels. Those are the three things primarily I think he's telling us to do with this passage. So let's get back into Paul's argument. Verse 21, tell me you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically these women are two covenants. Okay, so this passage, you've heard it a couple of times now, it's built on dichotomies, two things that are opposites of, of one another. So we've got two sons and we've got two women, Sarah and Hagar. We've got two ways of being born when it comes to these babies. We've got two covenants, we've got two Jerusalems. So there's all this dichotomizing that's happening in this passages, these two things that are opposites of one another. So, so what's all this getting at in Paul's argument? Well, I think all of it comes down to the difference between the events surrounding the birth of the two babies. That's kind of his controlling analogy. That's the dichotomy he's pointing us to to understand all the rest of them. The different ways, the different circumstances that produced these two births. And these, these children aren't named, Isaac's named in the passage, Ishmael is not named, but that's the two babies we're talking about. So Hagar gets pregnant with Ishmael and Sarah gets pregnant later with Isaac. Okay, so in the story of Hagar that, that Paul points us to, what are the two different ways of being born? In verse 23, Paul describes the difference. He says, but the son of the slave, that's Hagar, her son's Ishmael, but the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman, that's Sarah, was born through promise. Okay, so one baby is born according to the flesh, one is born according to the promise. That's the dichotomy. So what's he getting at with there? What does it mean that Ishmael was born according to the flesh? Well, the main idea is that for something to be born according to the flesh, for something to be according to the flesh at all, means it comes by way of human effort. That's what he's talking about here. That's what it means for something to be according to the flesh. 
It means it's according to human effort. Let me show you how we see that in the book of Galatians. So again, in verse 23 in our passage, we've got a dichotomy, a baby being born through the flesh and a baby being born through the promise. We see the, the same kind of dichotomy back in chapter three, verse 18. Flip a page over. Chapter three, verse 18, only there, it's not flesh versus promise. Chapter three, verse 18, for if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. Okay, so, so whereas in our passage, Paul talks about flesh versus promise, back in chapter three, verse 18, he talks about the law versus promise. And, and I think that's our key. The flesh is bound up with the idea of doing the law. According to the flesh, it's just shorthand for moral effort. And that's exactly what the Old Testament law required. Listen to chapter 3, verse 11. Paul tells us, Now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. That's the gospel. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. So remember, the conditions of the old covenant, the conditions required human effort. The condition required was that you fulfill the law, that covenant members actually obey. Now, that doesn't mean God thought it would work. We've seen that throughout Galatians. It's not like God set up the law and said, okay, you guys try to do these things, obey me, and that's what will bring you life. And then God sat back and thought, well, let's see what happens. You know, maybe it'll work. No, 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 no. God knew it wouldn't work. The law was designed because God knew that it wouldn't work. He knew that because people are sinners. He knew nobody would be saved through obedience to the law in the old covenant. Well, his intention was that the old covenant would make it clear to his people they had to have a savior. That's why he gave his law to his people primarily, was to show them they're sinners, they can't save themselves, they have to have a savior. He intended the old covenant to point to Jesus. And to do that, he set up the old covenant law in such a way where it required perfection, which nobody can do. So, so the flesh is the human effort of trying to fulfill the law, trying to achieve righteousness through our own abilities. Salvation by the flesh is salvation by human effort. Okay, back to our passage now. What does that have to do with the story of Hagar? We can start putting it together. Verse 22. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Okay, so there's our dichotomy. One baby was born through human effort, and the other baby was born through God's promise. The, the story of Hagar is the story of Sarah not trusting God's promise. She's not trusting God's promise, and so she defaults to human effort. So once again, God had promised Abraham and Sarah they would have biological children. That was bound up in the promise in Genesis 12, but God makes it even more explicit because Abraham asks about it. This is Genesis 15, verse 2. Listen to this. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. This is what God says. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. He said, This man shall not be your heir, 
your very own son shall be your heir. So God had told Abraham and Sarah at least a couple of times now, he would provide. He would provide them with a child. Sarah would get pregnant by Abraham, but she didn't believe God. She doubted him. And so she thought she and Abraham had to solve this problem themselves. And that's where the wheels come off, as the wheels oftentimes do. And this is the the first main thing I think the Lord would tell us from our passage. Trust the Lord over your own instincts. Trust the Lord over your own instincts. So Sarah didn't believe God's promise. And we get this. So remember, at this point, Sarah is close to 90 years old. And again, it doesn't doesn't take Haley Lawson to tell us most people that come into that hospital to have babies are not 90 years old. (laughs) They're significantly younger than that. So Sarah and Abraham, they'd gone a long time without her being able to get pregnant. And because of that, to Sarah, God's promise just seemed too far-fetched. Just seemed like this isn't going to happen. I've been around long enough. I've seen how this works. 90-year-old women don't get pregnant. So Sarah had God's promise on one side, but on the other side, she had her instincts and her intuition. And she said, I'm going with my instincts and my intuition. It's just too much. I can't believe this promise. I'm going to go with my instincts about this. Situation seemed hopeless to her. And so what she does is she steps in with her own plan. And her own plan, a horrible plan, which is, hey, Abraham, my husband, why don't you sleep with my servant and we'll see if we can get a baby that way. And so that's what happens. That's what it means that Ishmael was born according to the flesh. It was Sarah trusting her instincts, her intuition, her plan more than she's trusting God's plan. She thinks she has to make it happen herself. And it's easy to point fingers at Sarah, but can't you relate to that? You know, aren't, aren't there times in the past and, and, and even currently, aren't there times where as a Christian, God's ways just seem insufficient to you? Sometimes you see God's word and you just think that seems so implausible. It just doesn't seem like that will work. And we know with our head, that's never true. I mean, you're never going to answer that question wrong on a test, but the way we live our lives, isn't it easy sometimes to do that? To think, oh, I, I just don't think God's word is going to work here. So, so maybe you think that, that if you operated according to God's word at work, you'll never advance. There's people that have jobs like that, where they think, you know what, if I actually operated like a faithful Christian in this job, I'm not going to get promoted. That's just not going to fly here. And how would I provide for my family? And so you've got your intuitions and your instincts on one side and God's word on the other side. And it's just so easy to go with your instincts. I can't operate according to God's word. That won't work. I've got to go with my own instincts. Or maybe you think that, man, if I parent my kids the way God tells me to, it probably won't work. And and not only that, but my kids might resent me for doing that. You know, I look at this, that's that's not going to work. So you've got your intuition about how it'll be best to parent and then God's word. And it's so easy to go with our intuition, right? Ignore God's word. Or to get to one of the points from our passage last week, maybe you think that if you point out sin to a fellow believer, your relationship with that person will be forever damaged. It'll never recover. They'll write you off forever. And so you think, yeah, I see God's word calling me to do this, but, but it seems so implausible. My instincts seem like the right instincts. 
And so you go with your own instincts over God's word. It's easy to do this collectively as a church too. You know, we, we might think as a church, if we only focus on what the Bible tells us to do, our church isn't going to grow. No, what we need to do is go see what the experts are saying. What's the new cool thing? How do we get the next generation into the church? Let me tell you. So I'm a pastor. Even though I don't ask for these things to be sent to me, believe me, I do not ask for these things to be sent to me. But in our mailbox and more in my inbox, I get stuff all the time. All the time. This is how to grow your church. This is how to reach the next generation. You've got to use these tricks. You've got to use these fads. You know, what's the polling data tell us? It's, it's tempting sometimes, isn't it? To think, yeah, let's go with some of that. How, how are we going to reach this group of people? What can we do? What technique, what fad will be appealing to them? And of course, the, the subtext there is the Bible's ways just aren't dynamic enough. They just aren't fresh enough. Poor God. He just doesn't know any better, does he? So out of date. If only we would go to these other fads and, and techniques. Well, well, listen, all those sentiments... Whenever we've got our instincts over here, our intuition and God's word, and and we go there, all these sentiments have the same thing in common. We trust our intuition more than God's word. We don't want to do that, do we? No, as Christians, we always want to trust God's word over our intuition. Like we read about earlier in our church's confession of faith, we all read out loud, the Bible is the supreme authority by which all human conduct, creeds, and opinions should be tried. So God's word, it stands over all human opinions, including ours. So so what's the remedy when we're tempted to trust our instincts over God's instincts? Well, we need to remember that God's word is always reliable. His word is always reliable. It will always work. Let me read you one passage. This is Psalm 119, verse 89. It's a good picture. He says, Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. So the idea is God's word is not moving. It's always relevant. It always works. He doesn't change his word according to what's cool. No, his word is always fixed, and his promises will always come to pass. But see, Sarah didn't trust God's word. She didn't think it would work. He promised her a baby. She didn't think that would happen. So she thought she had to fix things in her own strength. But in the church, we we certainly want to fight against that. In your life, fight against that. Trust the Lord and not yourself. So when the Bible says something, regardless of how it strikes you, regardless of how unlikely it seems, believe it. It's God's word. It's true. All of it. The God of the universe never gets anything wrong. So so let's train ourselves. Let's pray that we would trust our instincts less and trust God's word more. Trust the Lord over your own instincts. And of course, the center of God's word, the most important promise God makes to us in the Bible is the gospel, the good news of Christ. And this is the main reason Paul leverages the story of Sarah and Hagar here. He's reminding the Galatian Christians about the goodness of the freedom of the gospel. And this is our second point this morning. Rejoice in the freedom of the gospel. It's the second main thing I think the Lord's asking us to do. Rejoice in the freedom of the gospel. Throughout the book of Galatians, it's it's this gospel that Paul is calling on the Galatian Christians to continue believing. So the false teachers trying to get them to turn away from it, to think, no, faith in Christ, that's not sufficient. 
You got to have some of your own works. You need to justify yourself in part through your good deeds. They were adding to the gospel. But like we saw in chapter one, Paul says a, a distortion of the gospel is a desertion of the gospel. You're turning away from the gospel when you start adding to it. Or like we talked about maybe a month ago, it's like you're sitting at supper and you're there with the Lord and the check comes. The options are either God pays the whole check or we pay the whole check. The false teachers were saying, no, just split the check. Let God do his half, that's the cross. And then you do your half to win a relationship with him. Be good, do these good works. But no, God doesn't split the check. A false gospel doesn't work. It's faith alone in Christ alone, apart from works that saves us. So that's what Paul's been teaching. But what he's adding here in our passage is he's saying that, that with this false gospel, the false teachers are playing the part of Sarah and Hagar and Ishmael. So look at verse 22 again. He says, for it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically, that just means symbolically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She's Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. So Paul's saying, okay, that the system of the false teachers, the system that relies on the old covenant law to be made right with God, Paul compares that system to the birth of Ishmael. Now these false teachers, they would have taken huge exception to that because the promise comes through Isaac. Every Jew knew that. They all wanted to trace their lineage back to Isaac. Ishmael was, was seen as sort of a mistake. He was seen as a burden. So every Israelite wanted to, to relate to Isaac. Nobody wanted to be compared to Ishmael. But that's what Paul is saying here. So, so in what way are these false teachers in what way is their false gospel like the birth of Ishmael? Well, again, it's because Ishmael's birth was centered on human effort. You see that connection? That's exactly what the false teachers were saying. Make yourself right in God's eyes through good works. That's what happened with Ishmael. His birth was centered on human effort. Again, to Sarah, the promise seemed too good to be true. So she thought she had to supplement it to help God out with her own efforts to produce a child. She had to devise her own plan. Has Abraham sleep with one of her servants named Hagar to get a child from it? She thought she had to act according to the flesh. And the thing is that kind of thinking, it's, it's always gonna be appealing to humans. It's really intuitive to us to think that we have to win our relationship with the Lord. Apart from God's word, we, we think that we have to do good things to, to achieve that. And that's why apart from Christianity, Every single other religion is built on that premise. Every single one of them. Christianity is the lone man out when it comes to faith alone and Christ alone, apart from works. To use the words of verse 23, every other religion seeks salvation according to the flesh, according to human efforts. That's what these false teachers were preaching to these young Galatian Christians. And, and Paul compares that system of salvation to the birth of Ishmael. Salvation through human effort. Look at what Paul says about these events, verse 24. He says, now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. So he says, yeah, it was always designed by God to point ahead to Christ. There's the gospel, and then there's every other religion. It was always designed to do that. 
Verse 23, but the son of the slave was born according to the flesh. So Sarah's plan hinges on the child of Hagar, who's a slave. And in the ancient Near East, when a slave had a baby, that baby was a slave too. So Paul, he's saying the same thing with all of this. He's saying that if you go back to the old covenant, if a human puts himself under justification by works, then they are a slave. It's like that person who escaped into West Berlin, sneaking back into East Berlin to be a slave once again. He's saying that's what the false teachers are calling you to do. Now, now let's remind ourselves why being under the old covenant of salvation by works is like slavery. We've talked about it before, but let's remember, we need to plug that piece in. Why is going back to the old covenant of justification by works like slavery? Well, it's because under the law, you never get a break. That's why it's slavery. You never get a break. You're always working for your salvation because salvation can only come by the law if you obey the law perfectly. Chapter three, verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So for the one who's trying to win salvation through good works, they're always working. They're always having to wonder, have I done enough today to be good enough in God's eyes? And the things I have done, did I do those with right motives? They're having to filter their life, their day through that lens all the time. Have I been good enough? One, one difficult thing about living in Maine was all the ticks. So Maine is a rural state. There are ticks all over the place. So a few summers ago, there's some summers, it's, if the winter is not a really cold winter, that's when you're gonna have a ton of ticks. There was a summer a few years ago where we'd be sitting in the living room and we would just look over and there would be a tick crawling up the wall which is a pretty unusual thing. There were ticks everywhere. And what that means is, well, that combined with another thing, there's also a lot of Lyme disease in New England. So it's not like down here where you get a dog tick on you and it's a nuisance and maybe it can get infected and that's the worst thing. No, in New England, a significant number of our church members had Lyme disease just from growing up in Maine. So lots of ticks, they carry Lyme disease. What that means is that you're kind of on high alert all the time during the spring and summer and fall, especially if you have little kids. So we would do tick checks. It was just part of our normal life. Our kids remember it. So regularly, well, we did it every night, but then a lot of times if the kids were out in the afternoon, they come in, we do tick checks, which with girls is harder because of the hair. So a lot of times if we're just sitting there on the couch, that's one thing that we're aware of is going through our kids' hair, you know, looking at their legs, being sure that there's no ticks there. It was an exhausting thing. You know, you see a speck of dirt, you see a black spot. We still do this. It's like post-traumatic stress. We see a black spot on one of the kids' feet, and that's where our mind, both Maria and I, our mind still goes there. Who knows how long it'll take before it doesn't, but we think, ooh, is that a tick? Because that's what happens. There were ticks all over the place. It was an exhausting thing. You're paranoid to a degree all the time. That's what salvation through good works is like. It produces paranoia. You're having to check every part of your life all the time if you think that's the way you're made right with God through good works. It's slavery. But in the gospel, we are freed from that. Completely freed from that. Look at our status in Christ, verse 31. Paul says, so brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. He's reminding them, we, we've been made right in God's eyes, not through living a righteous life, 
but through trusting in the one who lived righteously on our behalf, who is Christ, the Son of God. Verse 23, but the son of the slave woman was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. We've become God's children. We've become heirs of salvation, not through our own moral striving, but simply through trusting God's promise to us in the gospel. That if we believe in him, if we trust in Christ, all of our sins, past, present, and future, are all forgiven. We're trusting in that promise. If, if you're a Christian, then your salvation is all of the Lord. It's all based on his works. It's not based on your works at all. Look at the Old Testament passage Paul quotes for us in verse 27. This is Isaiah 54, it was our call to worship. Look at it again, verse 27 in our passage. He says, rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Okay, Isaiah in this passage, Isaiah 54, he's speaking to Israel in exile. So you might remember this Israel, the kingdom of Israel fell in two stages. The northern kingdom fell first. The nation of Assyria came in and wrecked them, took them into slavery. That's when Isaiah is giving this prophecy. Basically what he's saying is, I know the situation looks bad. I know it looks like there is no hope for you, but even though you are hopeless, God can and will save you. That's what this passage in Isaiah is getting at. And he's getting through it through this illustration of somebody not being able to have children. He's leveraging this idea that Sarah didn't understand, which is, no, you can't make that baby appear in your womb, but God can do that thing, and he'll show that it's all grace when he does it. That's the way God oftentimes brings salvation. He, he oftentimes does it in really surprising ways. So he provides this pregnancy to Abraham and Sarah. He, he gives them Isaac apart from their schemes. He actually has a theme of doing that throughout the Old Testament. So Sarah's barren, and then she gets pregnant with Isaac. Rebecca was barren, but then she gets pregnant with Jacob and Esau. Rachel was barren, but then she gets pregnant with Joseph. It proves over and over again that salvation is the Lord's. He's the one that does that. And, and of course, that kind of miracle culminates with Jesus, whose mother was more than barren. She was a virgin. And it culminates there. Verse 27, rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. So he's reminding us our salvation is completely in God's hands. We don't achieve any of it. He achieves all of it. Now that's freedom. As, as Christians, we're, we're no longer trying to work to cobble together enough righteousness to be good in God's eyes. We're not doing that any longer. Through faith alone and Christ alone, we've been made his children. He's fully pleased with us, not because of our works, but because of Jesus' righteousness. The righteousness he gave to us the moment we first believed in the gospel. Verse 28, now you brothers like Isaac are children of the promise. So we used to be slaves to works righteousness. Now we're free because of the gospel of Christ. Now, now what's the proper response to that reality? It's the first word of the Isaiah quote in verse 27. The proper response is rejoice. Rejoice in the freedom we've received in the gospel. You were a slave, but now you've been freed, so rejoice. 
That's a big part of what we get to do on Sundays together. We do that through the songs, through the prayers, through reading God's word together. But, but we should also have a steady flow of rejoicing throughout our week. So let me point out two times that it might be easy for us to leverage certain situations to rejoice in the freedom we have in the gospel. First, when you recognize your sin and repent of it, take that opportunity to rejoice that that sin can no longer keep you out of heaven. That sin no longer affects your relationship with the Lord, the way he looks at you. So when you repent of sin, just take that extra step and rejoice that that sin doesn't affect your standing in God's eyes any longer. And second, when you pray to the Lord, every now and then just take a, take a minute to rejoice that you can talk to him as your father, only because your sins have been paid for. You've been given freedom in the gospel. So two things we should be doing regularly as Christians, praying and asking forgiveness for sins. We can leverage those two opportunities to take a minute to rejoice in the freedom of the gospel. And back to the Galatians situation, Paul's point in all of this is to say, this is so good, the gospel is so good. Why would you guys consider going back under the law of works righteousness? Don't go back to slavery like that. Chapter five, verse one, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So instead rejoice in the freedom of the gospel. So, so that's how we should respond to the one true gospel of Christ. But how should we respond to false gospels that deviate from the one true gospel? And this is our final point this morning. The last thing I think the Lord tells us here, the last main idea, as Christians, we should cast out false gospels. It's the last thing we'll look at. Look at verse 30. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. Okay, in these verses, Paul's probably referencing an event that happens in Genesis 21. So remember, Ishmael, he's the one that's born first through Hagar. He's older than Isaac. In fact, he's, he's probably 14 or 15 years older. So he's, he's kind of a big kid when Isaac is born. And in Genesis 21, there's a story where Isaac as a baby is finally weaned. So he's ready for solid food. And that's something that they would celebrate in, in that culture. So Abraham prepares this big meal to celebrate that. But during that feast, Sarah sees Ishmael, the older brother, laughing at Isaac. Now, we don't know why that was, but he, he clearly wasn't laughing out of love. He, he was laughing out of disdain for Isaac. Look again at how Paul characterizes Ishmael's action. Verse 29. But just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh, talking about Ishmael, he persecuted him who was born according to the spirit. So through, through his laughter, Ishmael is persecuting Isaac. He's belittling him. Well, at the end of verse 29, Paul says, so also it is now. And he's talking about the false teachers around the Galatian churches, that they're teaching this false gospel of justification plus were justification by faith plus works by doing that they were belittling the real gospel of salvation by faith alone in christ and listen if you're a christian long enough you'll run into this same kind of thing this kind of belittling this, this kind of sneering so so you'll run into a muslim who tells you it's ridiculous that you think that god is three in one or that it's ridiculous that you would ever think that one man could pay for the sins of another man. 
Or you'll run into a coworker who tells you how, how silly and closed-minded it is to believe that Jesus is the only way to God, or that the Bible's teaching on human sexuality is relevant or right. They'll sort of just sneer at those ideas, think those are so silly. Or you'll run into a family member that says salvation can't come unless you're part of his particular church or baptized in a church like his. If you're a Christian long enough, you'll run into verse 29 type situations. But just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. Okay, so, so when that kind of persecution comes, what do we do? Paul tells us, verse 30, but what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. Okay, as we close, let me read you this story from Genesis 21. The events that Paul's talking about here. Let me read this to you and we'll see what God says to do. This is Genesis 21, verse eight and following. And Isaac grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son. For the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And God said to Abraham, whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Okay, so this is what Paul's referencing in verse 30 in our passage when he says, cast out the slave woman. I don't think he's telling the, the Galatian Christians to literally grab these false teachers and carry them out. Just take them out of town and, and maybe literally throw them out of town. I think he's making it pretty clear. What he's saying is, is that they're supposed to reject this false teaching. They're supposed to cast out those false gospels. They're supposed to make it clear that what these false teachers are saying is false and that as Christians, we won't believe it. I think that's the most direct application for us. What does it mean to cast out the slave woman? I, I think directly it means when you've got somebody attacking the true gospel, don't let that person leave thinking you agree with them. I think that's the most direct application here of casting out the slave woman. If they're attacking the gospel in front of you, don't let them leave without letting them know that you're standing up for the gospel. Don't let them think that you agree with them in that false gospel. Again, false gospels cause the worst kind of human suffering the world has ever known. There's lots of suffering in the world. False gospels cause the worst kind. And again, that's because only false gospels can continue to torment someone after they're dead. So we wanna cast that out. There's no worse kind of bondage. No worse kind of slavery than living under a false gospel. So we want to let somebody know that's not the true gospel. We want to stand up for the true gospel. However, we should note there is a time to actually, in a way, cast out the teacher of a false gospel. And, and that's when they're a member of a local church. So there, there are times when someone who's a member of a church will turn from the one true gospel and, and deny it. And in that situation, the church is supposed to follow Jesus's guidelines in Matthew 18 of pursuing them, calling for their repentance. But if they don't repent of the church eventually putting them out, even if it's a pastor that's preaching that false gospel. So, so there is a way where we're responsible to cast out the slave woman in that way. But, but I think the way we'll have to do this most regularly isn't with church members who deny the gospel. 
I don't even think the way we'll have to do it most regularly is with false teachers that, that we come across. I think we'll have to cast out the slave woman most regularly inside of our own hearts. I think that's the place where we'll have to do it the most. Many times the slave woman lives in here, in our heart. I don't think God would have given his church this letter to the Galatians if we weren't so often tempted to think that our salvation is dependent on our own good works. You know, that's not true, but, but as Christians, it's easy to believe it sometimes, to slip into that kind of thinking. And I think that's where Paul tells us to cast out the slave woman. So, so when, as a Christian, you're being tempted to think that because you've sinned in a certain way, God is looking at you differently. You might relate to what I just said. You sin in a certain way, and then instantly you think God is looking at me differently now because of my sin. Well, as a Christian, Paul tells us, cast that thinking out. That's the slave woman. That's not the gospel. Cast that thinking out. Or when you're tempted to think that, that you need to do certain things positively to get God to care about you more or be more pleased with you. Same thing, cast that thinking out. Or when on the flip side, you're tempted to be prideful because of your obedience, like your good works have increased your status in God's eyes. Same thing, cast that thinking out. Remind yourself of the one true gospel of faith alone in Christ alone. Remind yourself of verse 31. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. When we start to think about our relationship with God, that it's, it's built on our own efforts, it's like we're putting a yoke on our neck. He calls it a yoke of slavery. So don't submit to that. Christ didn't die so you could try and pull your salvation behind you like a slave. No, chapter 5, verse 1 tells us that he died so we could have freedom. And in the gospel, we do. Let's pray together. Father, we're so thankful that through Christ, we're not children of the slave woman that are under bondage, that are, that are held tight in paranoia and constant effort trying to make ourselves right in your eyes, which, which we know is a fool's errand. We could never do that because we're sinners. We're so thankful, Father, that through Christ, we're children of the free woman. Father, we have been freed from slavery of works righteousness and have been freed through the gift of Christ who has made us right in your eyes through our simple trust in him apart from any works. Thank you so much for the freedom we have in the gospel. We pray that we would rejoice in it. And Father, it would influence everything we do. Take a moment to pray silently and individually now that the Spirit would press these truths in on your heart. Take a few moments to do that now.